Well, I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at Hillside. I want to tell you how great it is to have you on this Mother's Day Sunday. You know, as it happens, uh, my mom is in Hawaii on this Mother's Day uh, with my niece, Anna. And that is such a bummer because it means that she is not here for my twin brother and me to honor her by eating the brunch he would otherwise be making for us. So anyway, but anyway, mom, I love you. You're one of my greatest life blessings. So thank you for being a wonderful mom. Uh, it's kind of untypical to launch a Mother's Day sermon with a story about snakes, but I really have no choice because snakes have been in the news. I don't know if you've noticed this, but just a few weeks ago, a, a South African pilot is flying four passengers uh, somewhere, and it's a routine flight until he feels something cold slide across the uh, hollow of his back. This is true. He, he glances down. This is when the, the plane's up in the air. He glances down, and, and what does he see? A large Cape Cobra on the ground underneath his seat. I mean, we thought it was just in the movies, okay? But no, it's real. Cape Cobra, one of the most venomous snakes in all of Africa. Somehow this guy manages to not freak out like I'm sure I would have and uh, makes an emergency landing. Move over Captain Sullenberger. Remember him? Yeah, another cool cat. Uh, but that's actually not the snake story that really gave me the chills this past week. Just this past week, I read about this. Single mom from Colorado, a gal named Amber Hill, uh, begins moving into her new home. And this is a home that she has uh, saved for and worked for uh, for years to purchase. Anyway, during the move-in, she notices that the family dog uh, is acting kind of weird, so she goes over to see what's going on, and she finds the dog in this standoff with a huge snake. Next day, she finds another snake somewhere in the house. The next day, another snake. The next day, another snake, and another snake, and another snake. Snakes everywhere in the yard on the floor, in the walls of her new house. Can you imagine? I'm terrified of spiders on the wall, okay? But snakes in the house, apparently uh, there's a den of snakes underneath. And yes, it's true. And even though she hired a snake wrangler, I had no idea these folks even exist, to de-snake the home, she wonders whether she's ever going to be able to feel comfortable in this home and who can blame her. Well, I bring this up to, uh, to make a point. I think that that is a picture of the experience of a lot of people in our world, and especially people who live in more affluent places like we do. Think about it. They give everything to acquire a house of some kind, uh, a house that the culture tells them they simply must have in order to be satisfied and full. And then when they finally get that house, whatever it might be, 
they discover the stakes. They discover that what they were going for, what they were searching for, what they were straining for, didn't deliver what they were hoping for, or maybe delivered something worse. Well, thankfully, 1 John, which is the book that we have been in for the spring series, you know what it does? It directs us to a different house, a house that delivers real good in our lives, and not just good in our lives, but live, a good that passes through us into the world beyond. So let's read today's passage. We'll jump in. It's just three verses, but they pack a wallop, starting at verse 15. Listen to what John says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's God's word for us. John continues uh, his Christian handbook, which is really what 1 John is, by telling people that he loves, believers that he's writing to, to not love the world. And, you know, if we're reading carefully, this should create some tension in us right off the bat. Because after all, aren't we supposed to love the world? I mean, doesn't God love the world like John 3.16 says? So what's John talking about here? Well, in the New Testament, the word for world has several shades of meaning, which I don't think will surprise you. Sometimes the word uh, means the entire universe, everything that God made. Sometimes the word specifically means our planet, and sometimes the word means people on the planet. But this is interesting. In John's writings, his gospel, and then uh, the epistles, the first of which we're studying in this series, When John talks about the world, he means something very, very specific. Rather than our planet, rather than the people on the planet, what John usually means is ungodly products and patterns of life. And that's what he's saying believers like us are not to love. And then in verse 16, he he expands on the thought. He expands on what he means by the world. And listen to him again here. He says, for all that's in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here John says that, again, the world, in the sense that we've talked about it, it's it's products and it's life patterns. For the most part, he says they are grounded in three basic values. There's sensualism, materialism, and what we're going to call show-off. Ism, uh, for a better term. And he basically says, as, as these values uh, are not from God, they should be rejected. Let, let's press into them. First of all, sensualism, uh, the desires of the flesh. John says this is the value. It, it, it's very strong in some places, especially in the world that we live in right now. It's the value that one's immediate comfort is the highest good. And this includes uh, sexual comfort. It includes identity, 
comfort, but it actually spans well beyond those things. Materialism, uh, desire of the eyes. This is the value that true life, all of our happiness is really ultimately found in things. And then finally, show-offism or pride of life is the value, again, very strong, especially where we live, sort of in the shadow of the Silicon Valley, that the goal of life is image or reputation, having 100,000 followers on YouTube. And we could go deeper into this trio, but that's the basic flavor of verse 16. And as believing people, as those who have been swept up into God's purposes, who have been united to a reigning king, uh, we're to reject those things, sensualism, materialism, and show-offism. And isn't that a relief? I mean, isn't that really good news? We could stop right here. I mean, think about what God has told us here. After all, does anyone think, anyone, if we just kind of open our eyes and look at the world, does anyone think that living supremely for physical gratification leads to happiness? Of course, it never does. That's the path to pain. And the examples are everywhere. I mean, two seconds of thought, two seconds of thought will reveal that the price of all sorts of good things the things that make a life worth living at the very end of it, the price of that is setting aside our comfort at times and resisting various impulses. I mean, didn't our moms do this for us? Unless you were raised by a wolf and I wasn't. I mean, think about our moms. Think about how they stuffed the desire to keep sleeping at 2 a.m., night after night after night in order to feed us. I mean, my mom did, and she did it for scrawny, squawking, asthmatic twins, okay? Pathetic, but she did it. (laughs) Verse 16 is good news. It's good news regarding materialism. I mean, does anybody still think that having a bunch of stuff makes us happy. Of course it doesn't. It doesn't make us happy. In fact, over and over again, I mean, just kind of beyond the necessities of life, you know, our possessions, especially the big ones and the expensive ones, they end up possessing us, don't they? And then finally, does anyone really think that fame leads to fulfillment? Do we need any more stories about this? I mean, again, of course not. I mean, most of the time we just look around, we just observe. Fame is something to endure. It's not something that anybody should want. I mean, is there anything more hazardous than being a TikTok influencer? Have you noticed? So many of them self-destruct. This doesn't seem to be a thing to pursue. And along that vein, think about this. Think about what the competition for status on social media does to people. Think about what it does to our teenagers. I mean, in many cases, it's leading them to the emergency room because of complete emotional and psychological disintegration. The stories are legion. 
And the bottom line is that, that, that God calls us away from these things. That God calls us away from the desires of the flesh, desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are snake houses. <laughs> They're not fit for human habitation. God offers us so much, something so much better, a much, much better house. But John has his own reasons for us, and he's speaking to us. His dear children, people he loves, uh, to not love the world. And here's the first one. We find it in the second half of verse 15. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're going to get back to that one. But we find the second one in verse 17. He says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Now, let's camp on that for a second. In other words, John is saying that the, that the world Right now, under the power of wounded evil, like it is right now, dominated by sensualism, uh, materialism, exhibitionism, he's saying it's on borrowed time. It has absolutely no future. It's simply not going to last at all. Now, this requires some nuance, and this is really important to get, especially if you're here and you're exploring Christianity. You're trying to get to know this story, and if that's you, we are so happy you're here. But this is really important to get. Here, John is not saying, he's not saying that creation itself is passing away. John is not saying that the material world itself is ultimately going to disappear. No, get this, God loves his creation. And God is not going to lose the battle for his creation. He is absolutely committed to saving creation. You know what? And I, I bring this up so much. I should have this inscribed on my tombstone. In fact, Allison, are you listening? I want this on my tombstone. God loves creation. He loves it. And he's not going to lose the battle for it. In fact, God has already won the battle for it in principle through his son's death on the cross and through that resurrection. And someday that victory will come to completion when creation is completely remodeled and becomes for us God's people like one of those dream houses on HGTV. Creation is not passing away. Rather, the world is passing away. Again, the world in the sense that we've defined it, the products, the life patterns that neither lead to happiness nor even more and more connect with what is real. None of that's going to last. Those things are short timers. And a New Testament passage that really will help us hold on to that distinction, that even though the world does not have a future, creation does, is Romans 8.21. Here's a passage to underline. In your, past, in your work Bible. And, it, and if you shepherd other people at Hillside, you care for kids, uh, you serve at the well or Oasis or a home group or Wednesday morning men, this, is a, this really is a passage to, to, to sink down deep in your theological imagination because so much hinges on getting this idea right. But listen to what Paul says here. He describes a future day when he says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What we're speeding towards is not the disintegration of the physical world, still less the disintegration of our bodies. 
Someday creation's going to be sprung loose from its corruption. God's not going to lose the battle for his creation. He loves it. When he made it, he called it very good. Another passage. Here's another one to, to mark in your work Bibles. This is something for shepherds to, 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 to have deep in our thinking. This is 1 Corinthians 7.31. And there Paul says, it's not creation that's passing away. God's not going to lose creation, but the present form of this world which is passing away. The unhealthy stuff that people created uh, ignoring God's ways and God's purposes. And if you love Yosemite, and if you love great art, and if you love great recipes and poetry and beautiful things that human beings have made to honor God, the fact that the world is passing away but creation isn't should be very, very, very good news for you. You know, I said this just yesterday at a memorial service, and I, the person I said it to laughed. I think she thought I was joking. I was actually being deadly serious. She's one of the quilters, one of these crown jewel ministries of Hillside. They make these absolute, someone's laughing now. I don't get it. I'm being serious. These quilters make these absolutely spectacular quilts. They're beautiful. I have two of them. Do you have one, Tony? Yeah, two. They're beautiful. And I said to this quilter, I said, you know what? I said, in the new heavens of the new earth, I am absolutely certain every single one of those quilts is going to be present. And she laughed at me. She laughed. I won't say who. I said, absolutely. First Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter of the Bible says that everything we do done out of faithfulness to the Lord, all that work is going to find a way into God's new world. It's not in vain. And that includes the quilts. That includes the lessons that people work on. That includes that beautiful, beautiful cross. It's going to find a home. It's not going to be lost. Now, this raises a question in our minds. We're starting to answer it, but we got to go a little further. Why is not loving the world so important? Especially sort of within the thought world of the book of 1 John. And is it, again, is it sort of just because this trio of things in verse 16 is bad in the abstract? Is that really what it is? Is it just sort of moralism? Is it because they're bad in the abstract? Well, they are bad in the abstract, like we talked about, they actually don't lead us to any kind of happiness. They don't help our world in any way. But you know what? There's more to it than that. John has something else in mind. And we can arrive at it if, if we think about this. Anyone remember when we started this series, He Became Us, what I suggested to you is John's primary practical concern. All right. I said that his primary theological concern is the incarnation. Remember that? The idea that the eternal son became a true human being, a real human being, and that Jesus of Nazareth is that eternal son. But does anyone remember what we said is John's primary practical concern? Anyone remember? The primary practical concern. The idea that comes up in Tornado First John more than any other, over and over and over again. It's love in the family of God. It's love of the Christian brother. Remember, it's not just talk love. It's I'll help you move love. 
I will listen to you when your heart is broken kind of love. I will love your children along with you and encourage them. It's, it's, it's on the ground love. It's love in the family of God that John is most concerned about from a practical standpoint. And that begins to help us arrive at the answer to why not loving the world. It's, it's products and its patterns of life is so critical. And don't miss this. It's because love of the world crowds out love of the family. That's why. Love of the world crowds out love of the family, the family of God. And it's actually not hard to see why. I mean, think about it. Love of porn, which is just one manifestation of the desires of the flesh, making one's personal comfort supreme, it kills off love of husband or love of wife. Love of things kills off love of the poor who need us as Jesus people to share our things. Love of image, reputation, fame, kills off love of service. Humble service, say like gathering clothes for newly released prisoners or taking communion to hillsiders who are unable to come here on Sundays or serving coffee at a memorial service or doing what the DeYoungs did today, moving furniture out to the patio so people would have a nice place to sit. You know, none of those things gather likes and followers, but they are precious in the sight of God. But if we're too concerned about image, reputation, and fame, we'll never give ourselves to those little acts of service. Friends, love of the world crowds out love of God's family. And then by extension, it crowds out love of the world because that's the world this family is called to love. You could put it this way. Love of the world sends us down the path of Demas. Anyone remember him? I didn't before this week. He's mentioned just a few times in the New Testament. Check this out. At the end of his letter to the Colossians, Paul includes him on his ministry team. And in hillside terms, in hillside language, Demas is an amazing racer, okay? Selected a ministry team at the beginning of the fall, uh, got on that team, and was headed for the finish line uh, in spring. But then, so listen to what Paul says about him. This is 414. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So Demas is a guy on the team, all right? But then something sad. Listen to this. At the end of his second letter to Timothy, Paul mentions Demas again. And this time, the report isn't so good. Check this out. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Isn't that interesting? And gone to Thessalonica. Isn't that interesting? Demas, he falls in love with the present world. A world that has no future. A world in which the, the, the sand is, is running through the glass. And as a result, he deserts the race of faith. And it happens today. And we could boil down the big idea of this passage to this. To love the world, or to use our own language, to, to be light in the world, we must not love the world. That's what this passage is saying. In other words, to love the world, both the people in our, our little home, our church family, and then ultimately the people outside that church family whom our church family exists to serve, we must not love the world. 
meaning we must not get overly engrossed in the ungodly products and patterns of life that pervade it. Love of the world chokes out love of the world. Now, how practically do we not love the world? How how do we do a not? How do we do that? Let me give you two quick ideas. First, this. We look away from love of God quenchers. We just look away. And these are things, and I know what they are in my life. You probably know what they are in your life, that incite the big three of verse 16. And looking away starts with just remembering the world that is true and the world that is actually coming and remembering what's going to last and what's not going to last. And then second, to not love the world, we look upon love of God accelerants. And this is Philippians 4 to 8 things. This is a verse, if you're a Jesus follower, you know really well, but we, we, we never kind of come to the end of, of quoting it. Listen to this, Philippians 4 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And I love that because it means that not loving the world doesn't just mean what we turn away from. It means what we turn to, what we look at. And Scripture invites us to feast our eyes on all sorts of things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent. And I thought about this a lot recently. You know, for me, it's more hikes more old books, more getting outside, and less news stories that lead to rants at home about the insanity of the world. Ask my sons. Ask my sons. And if we wonder whether a particular thing passes the Philippians 4a test, we just consider this question. Just gazing upon, focusing on, giving attention to X, does it awaken hope? Does it awaken a desire to be faithful, a desire to be brave, a desire to be generous, or over time does it generate a desire for something else? And of course, the supreme love of God accelerant is King Jesus. He's the most lovely person who ever lived. He's the one who died for us, the one who's reigning today, the one who someday we're going to get to see in his full glory and then we'll never desire anything again. Before we close, I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about what I think this passage says to us right now on this very important Sunday. This is a very important Sunday. This is the last time we're going to be together without our new Hillsiders joining us. It's going to be the last time I get to talk to you as your pastor before these wonderful people join us. And I really felt the Lord speaking to me. I, I, I wrote this sermon differently a few days ago, and then I changed it at the end. I think that in uniting with Open Table, God has given us a generational gift. I really do. We now have capabilities we didn't have before. I don't know what a good analogy would be. You know, for baseball fans, it could be, you know, are you uniting with Open Table? We could liken it to, say, the San Francisco Giants signing 
Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, okay? I don't think it's going to happen. For basketball fans, we might liken it to the Warriors signing LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Sorry, too raw. Sorry, too soon. You'll have to forgive me. I'm from Davis. I'm a Kings fan. But anyway. Again, we could not have imagined this. We couldn't have planned it. And I really think that new victories are on the horizon. New baptisms, new people coming into this family and growing up in Jesus. And having said that, I also know this. Realizing the potential of New Hillside is going to require something of all of us. It will. And it's going to require, thinking in the terms of the passage we just looked at, resisting the desires of the flesh in a certain sense. Resisting the idol of comfort. Every single one of us, including me. You see, to realize the potential of better together, we're all going to need to move. We're going to need to adjust. There's no other way. There's no other way. It's the opportunity cost of better together. And here are some possible moves. It may require us moving into different ministry roles. It may require serving where we've never served before, like on the shepherding team that Pastor Wayne is going to be leading. It may involve moving from team membership to team leadership. Maybe you have been soaking in Hillside's transformative ministries for a long time. One of our astonishingly good pillar ministries, which I love. I went to Kairos last week, and again, I was struck. I cannot believe we offer this. But if you've been soaking in Kairos or the well or Wednesday morning men for a long time, maybe Now's the moment to step up to lead, to take all that training that you've gotten and to assume new responsibility at Hillside. Maybe it could involve moving out of team leadership so somebody else can have a chance. Maybe it can involve moving out of leadership of one ministry and moving into team leadership of another ministry. Maybe it can involve moving over to welcome new people into your intimate social circles, creating some space within the group that you're, they're, they're more, they're like family, they're your friends, people you share life with, and, and including them, welcoming them. And maybe it's moving into a new group. Maybe it's moving to a new seat. Next week, we're going to be a much bigger group. Wow, that was the one that got the most attention. I will lead VBS next year. Just don't ask me to leave my seat, is what somebody's saying. You know, for six Sundays, for the last Sunday of the month, for six months, it will involve moving to a new worship space. Because like we talked about, the last Sunday of the month, for the next six months, we're going to have the one hillside worship service in Civic Park. And these are for two reasons. One is light bearing. We exist to be light in the world. Periodically, we should worship outside and proclaim light that way. But the other one is really the one that is more important for me right now, and it's a very practical one. It's we've got a bond. We've got a bond with our new open table folks, our new hillsiders, and it will help to do that if we're all in one service, and it will help to do that if six times over the next six months we meet 
in their familiar place. I also want to say this. After those six Sundays, I am nearly certain that some kind of meaningful park presence is going to continue in some way, shape, or form, but listen to me here, not as the sole worship service on a Sunday, okay? Because this place is our base. It needs to be the place from which we launch, okay? We also want to be very sensitive to hillsiders with mobility issues, and I want you to know I have not forgotten you. We've not forgotten you. I feel that weight people that are going to have a hard time getting down there on those six Sundays, okay? But here's my big ask as your pastor. If you are physically able, if God's given you enough strength, if you can do it, I ask for the sake of our mission and for the sake of realizing the potential of Better Together, I ask that you would join us down at the park on those six Sundays. I ask you to do it. The first being Sunday, May 28th. Once you've done it once, you will see how manageable it is. You'll also see what a joy it is to be out there in public proclaiming Jesus. Again, I understand some of us are physically unable to get down there. I am very aware of that. I feel the weight of it. I'm thinking about it a lot. But if that's you, here's my big ask for you. I would ask that you would watch on the screen if you're physically unable to get down there. I ask that while you're watching on the screen, you would pray harder for the church than you've ever prayed before. And then I ask that the next week when we're back here, you'd come back because we need you. No one is expendable. We need everyone. Here's the really good news. We can do it. We can make the moves. And here's why. We don't have to rely on our own willpower. We don't just have to suck it up and try to do it. We can move, and we can move because of the body of Christ, literally because of the physical body of Christ, because of the incarnation. You see, King Jesus, the one to whom we are fused in love as his children, is also the eternal Son of God who did what? He himself moved from heaven to earth, from unbodied to bodied to make relationship with us possible. Our God moved to make relationship possible. Our God moved permanently into a body. He's never going back to make fruitful relationship possible. And if Jesus the King who we are connected to, moved to make relationship possible, we can too, if we belong to him. Yes. We can move seats. We can move offices. We can move ministry teams. We can move leadership roles. We can move to a different small group to make fruitful relationship possible. This is what the body of Christ means for the body of Christ right now for Hillside. The incarnation means we can move to. And I know you feel this way. Join me in not wasting this moment. We don't want to waste this. It's not coming around again anytime soon. I know this to be the case too. Evil is real. The devil is lurking. 
And he would like nothing more than to turn better together into a dud. That's what he wants to do. He's already actively working against this. He doesn't want this. He doesn't want believers coming together, sharing gifts, moving over, making space, trying new things. He doesn't want this. And so he's at work to defeat it. Let's resist him. Let's resist him together. Let's pray like we've never prayed before. Let's welcome these new people, smiling at them. Let's include them. Let's be willing to move over. Let's resist him for the sake of our king and for the sake of who knows how many scores of people who don't know Jesus the king. Coming to know him and becoming our brothers and sisters and growing up in him and becoming light bearers themselves. This is our moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this family. Help us all. Help me to love the world less so I can love our church family more. And ultimately so that we can more effectively love the world to whom you have appointed us as ambassadors of the good news of your son, the only truly good news. Thank you for what we're beginning we pray in the name of our King. Amen. Amen.